Broadcasting live from the Twilight Zone, this is The Monstrous Feminine, the podcast where horrible humans talk about horror. My name is Ava, and I'm joined by my talkie Tinas, Mila, and Louisa. And this month, we're going to be talking about dolls and horror. Taya is not available this episode, but she'll be back soon. We're covering the 1963 classic Living Doll, an episode of The Twilight Zone directed by Richard C. Serafian, the first 1988 film in the Chucky franchise, Child's Play, directed by Tom Holland, and the 2022 sci-fi horror Maggot, directed by Gerard Johnstone. Go ahead and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, or the Apple Podcast app. You can find all of our links on our Instagram, at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast. In Living Doll, a disgruntled husband named Eric berates his new wife Annabelle and adopted daughter Christy for their costly purchase of a high-tech toy doll named Takitina. Tensions grow high when Eric winds up the doll and it insults him whilst they're alone. Convinced that this is a prank by his wife and daughter designed to jibe at his infertility, Eric becomes enraged and confiscates it from Christy. He attempts to dismember and burn the doll, but eerily finds that no harm can be done to it. Takitina's threats grow more severe, and she tells Eric that she's going to kill him. My name is Takitina, and I'm beginning to hate you. My name is Eric Strader, and I'm going to get rid of you. You wouldn't dare. Huh? Wouldn't I? Annabelle would hate you. Christy would hate you. And I would hate you. Did you guys ever play with dolls when you were kids? I was a doll baby, as they say. What's the doll baby to non-binary pipeline? Um, I mean... Okay, I wasn't allowed to have, like, Barbie dolls or, like, womanly figured dolls, like, explicitly in our feminist home. I had a few American Girl dolls. Those were luxurious. Um, only the ones of color, of course. But, yeah, I'd say, like, baby dolls were, like, the main toy that I played with imagination games until, you know, like, I grew out of doll age. But, like, more than stuffed animals, more than action figures, again, wasn't allowed Barbies or Bratz. So I feel like if I was doing something with imagination, it was with baby dolls. But my baby dolls didn't act like babies all the time. Sometimes they were, like, full-grown women and they were out to brunch, you know? Oh, okay. I was going to say, I had had Bratz dolls and Barbies, and I think it made me gay, just saying. It did indoctrinate your homosexuality, I agree. I was, like, making them scissors. (laughs) They were so feminine, they surely were not interested in men, like, to me. They were high-fan lesbians, all of them. All gay. I just, I think I, because I had a Baratz who is, like, biracial, and that was, like, that's me. Obviously. She wasn't actually part of the core four. She was, it started with an N. So she was like who I always was. And then I think she just had relationships with men, but I picked the queerest looking man. I'm so on your way, but we would have had a great time playing dolls together. I also had Polly Pocket. Oh, I, oh, I loved Polly Pocket. Pocket. I want to pose a question to y'all. Re-feminism. Okay. I was not allowed to have Barbie or Bratz dolls because they weren't feminist, according to my mom. Because of body image things, probably. But I was allowed to have baby dolls. But is that not, like, teaching? I don't know. Everybody should know how to care for 
a baby or like a younger person and I didn't have any younger siblings but for the most part my mom was like only giving me boy toys the exception being baby dolls I think your mom did it right honestly but like I wouldn't be allowed for example to have like fake fake kitchen stuff See, now, Zeba, interesting that you pose that because I find that, like, I-, I worked at the nursery for a very long time and I found that the boy babies, like toddlers, let's say, toddler to preschool, they all played with baby dolls mixed together and with kitchen supplies. Like, it does not really, like, become a thing until a bit late preschool when only exclusively girls will be play, with- play with the baby dolls. So I feel like, obviously, the toy itself... Let's get Butlerian. A spoon and a fork. And if you said which one's feminine, you'd say the spoon. But if you have a knife and a fork, which one's feminine, you'd say the fork. It's all arbitrary. And I feel like baby dolls and kitchen toys are exactly that. So, like, I'll let my kid play with anything. But the issue comes when you exclusively provide them one set of toys. So, ironically, you might say that your mom made you queer. Right, right. I feel like young people nowadays are, like, more, like not even accepting they just don't really pay attention it's such a point in like childhood development where you could just tell terrible school societal values just like infiltrate and they get like this normative thinking because everything before that is like fair game and we don't have to deep anything like a boy in a dress doesn't mean that he's gonna grow up and be like gender fluid trans or whatever maybe he will maybe not but either way it's just play and parents freak the fuck out about it for no goddamn reason they are confronted with the idea that gender and most of our things that we don't like are performative. The second we could test for the sex of a baby while it was still in there is the second marketing was like, how soon can we sell like pink and blue items to people before a baby is out? The Monstrous Feminine is on Twitter, so please go tweet us. If you do engage with our content, you might just get a shout out in our next episode as our Witch of the Week. This episode, our Witch of the Week, is Rory SVCR, who tweeted a screenshot of our podcast and said, Hey Horror Twitter, I've been really enjoying these podcasts and wanted to recommend. Thanks for recommending. Also, Horror Twitter. Are we in it? I think we're in it. Who are they, who are, who are they speaking to? I think that... Rory, if I may call you Rory, is part of Horror Twitter and is calling them. That sounds spooky. <laughs> it, I mean, hell yeah. Thank you for alerting Horror Twitter of our presence. It's somewhat scary, but we're very grateful. We hope that there are no haunted dolls in your near future. I can't speak on the distant future, but in the near future, no haunted dolls. Unless you want them and you bought one on eBay and that's like your thing. No, but if you're doing that, that's some dumb shit and you should stop. No, that's... I... I... <laughs> I approve. What? No, I do not. Friendly reminder that we're also on Patreon. For £1 a month, you gain access to our Discord. For £3 a month, you get to hear a cut discussion of our main episodes. And for £5, you get all that plus a bonus episode. Please support us. Any contribution helps. So... I want to talk about why dolls are scary and I want to do a quick recap of dolls and the uncanny valley theory. According to the source of all knowledge, Wikipedia, the definition of an uncanny valley is, in aesthetics, the uncanny valley is a hypothesized relation between an object's degree of resemblance to a human being and the emotional response to the object. The concept suggests that humanoid objects that imperfectly resemble actual human beings provoke uncanny or strangely familiar feelings of uneasiness and revulsion in observers. 
valley denotes a dip in the human observer's affinity for the replica, a relation that otherwise increases with the replica's human likeness. All that to say, we initially kind of like something that looks human and then we get very disturbed by it because we realize that something's actually quite off about it. What spooks me out about it is I don't know if this is actually true or if people are spreading misinformation on the internet like they want to do, but I understood it to be like there's something mysterious in our evolution where there were maybe like humanoid things that were a threat to us and like that's why we're still scared of things that are not quite human now, like aliens who like tried to look human, but they weren't quite. Because there's obviously uncanniness in things that don't resemble the human form. Like an uncanny feeling can just be something that's familiar and strange and sort of equal measure. There is the uncanny as a concept. And apparently there's, I'm reading the, going down Wikipedia, why we might have this. And one is like mate selection. There's mortality salience. Automatic stimulus-driven appraisals of uncanny stimuli elicit aversion by activating an evolved cognitive mechanism for the avoidance of selecting mates with low fertility, poor hormonal health, or ineffective immune systems based on visible features of the face and body that are predictive of strength. This is a little bit ableist, but basically mate selection means that like you'll avoid something that looks like there's something off. I think it's more of like an ego thing, a subconscious ego thing of like, oh my God, I feel threatened because this thing, I don't know how to categorize it and therefore it's other, it's threatening and doesn't threaten me. It's kind of like when when your phone camera is like looking for the face to like put the little box around and focus on somebody's face and sometimes focus on things in the background that aren't a person because they're like face-like or like when people were using those anime AI filters on TikTok and finding like ghosts in their room. But it was really probably just like things that were oval shaped like a head and that just like, you know, made a person out of it. I feel like our brains have internal systems that are face recognition, right? Like when you're a baby and you're first learning faces or like people with face blindness maybe wouldn't be affected by dolls in any particular way. Like it's something about how we process information. Yeah, one of these reasons is, again, threat to human distinctiveness and identity. So yeah, the, the idea that like something is uncategorizable and like that you're less special. I don't know. I think that it was important to delve into that context when we launch into our horror month talking about dolls, because I actually think that some of the scariest premises to me personally are like doppelgangers and dolls and I think that's just because they both deal with the uncanny and I find that a particularly jarring subgenre. I'm quite excited that we're doing a Twilight Zone episode because I had never seen any episode and I've, I've wanted to watch the Twilight Zone for a really long time because I feel like at this point like I know when things are like I know when something's referencing a Twilight Zone thing but I haven't seen the original and I actually really enjoyed it. What did you guys think? I, I had a really good time. I think that sometimes when I watch older, I'm A, impressed for like how good it is given the time period because I always feel like sometimes I watch like or we watch movies from the 70s and I'm like, Wham. I thought it would be like not as suspenseful. But then I kind of liked this back to basics, although for them it was probably high tech, but like basics kind of depiction and I think they did a really good job and I think the acting's good and I think the concept is scary I think it's scarier when it's all stripped down 
I don't think the doll has to even be very realistic. I think the fact that it's not that realistic is what makes it quite frightening. I told Zeba before we started recording that the reason I put forth this episode as something we like voted on to do was because I knew Zeba is a Twilight Zone fan. Thank you for thinking of me when voting for this one, even though Annabelle had to be bumped because I do love the Twilight Zone. I probably, I think I've seen every episode. Like rarely does an episode come on TV that I haven't seen or don't vaguely remember. This one is one of the more iconic ones. It does come on a lot. There are a few episodes like um, that just are like more famous than others, I think because they're really original concepts and ideas. And I think Louisa, what you're saying about like it being stripped down, I guess, because you can't rely on like the technology or special effects, the story has to be really, really good. And so the Twilight Zone originally was based on a radio show called Suspense. And because it was a radio show, it was even more stripped down because all you get was the voice acting and the story had to be really, really good. So The Hitchhiker is an episode that used to be just audio. You can also just like listen to the audio. It's probably on YouTube. That became one of the more famous Twilight Zone episodes. If people are a fan of War of the Worlds, that wasn't a Twilight Zone episode, but same kind of like radio drama recreation of something that's supposed to like, I don't know, like it used to come on at a certain time of day. It was like, this is like early, like way before streaming media, which is like, if you had to like sit down and watch it when it came on. So it was like an event, like everybody sat down to watch the new Twilight Zone or listen to Suspense. Um, And I think I was really fascinated by that type of horror media because we talk about how much funnier it is to see horror in a theater, but things like that came on your TV exclusively, like a 30 minute program, it feels really intimate and scary in a different type of way and suspenseful in a different type of way. It also like, is kind of meant to be family friendly and that there won't be very much gore or like things that would out and out scared child like I get the idea that the Twilight Zone was meant to be like a family program um and might be like the scariest thing you see as a child just because like the ideas get in your head and they're really haunting so that's what I loved about it they come on the sci-fi network I think I've said this like every federal holiday in the U.S. there's Twilight Zone marathon so that means they play all the episodes all day long and that's how I've seen all of them is like So it'll be like 4th of July, Thanksgiving, President's Day, Twilight Zone will be on on the sci-fi network. To this day, they just, that's just what they do. Because they know it's like a fun thing to have on in the background, I think. Like anybody who isn't watching football can be watching the Twilight Zone, I guess. And they just hold up. Like most of the episodes really, really hold up. And, And especially this one is so gendered. It's just like so indicative of its time you know i think this is supposed to be like a 50s housewife maybe perhaps like look how far we've come like it's 63 you haven't come that far but they're commenting on like gender roles of its time and i still feel like it's something we can understand and they're like archetypes that we understand like a lot of the twilight zone was disturbing like the american suburban fantasy like commenting on those dynamics, but also like thinking about like, how scared would you be if these things were actually like shooken up in any way? So a lot of them are about like, looking around at the world around you, and all the houses look the same, and all your neighbors are the same. And like, how scary is that if something was like a little bit off? Um, Which I think is something that is like, timeless, right? Like the suburbs are still spooky and uncanny and weird. And it really and that was when like, like picket fence, nuclear family, suburban life was like, 
it. That was what you aspired to. So I think it's really interesting that they disrupted that so early and like almost at the inception of that like idealized American family especially on TV like it's still black and white like that's how early we're commenting on how weird the the structures are that we're forming so I'm a big fan just because I think there's just like so much to dig into there um and yeah I think they're still really great episodes I don't there's hardly any one that I feel like is dated or bad or like doesn't land anymore. I think they're all really still scary and interesting. Like I said, I agree with you that I watched this and it ironically feels less dated than like later horrors that I've watched. You know what I mean? Like you're right. It is that kind of art of storytelling. And one criticism we have often is characterization. I feel like this does that very well. But what you said in that it's quite progressive and how it critiques American society as it's forming it. That was one thing that surprised me when watching it is this like comment on the father's like obsession with like this doll symbolizing his infertility and like or their like failed nuclear family. I thought that was really interesting. I didn't realize. I don't know why. I guess because it's like 1963. I was like, oh, damn, are we going to say the words infertility like on the tele? Like, I don't know. I was just like quite surprised by this and like how he says it so outright. Like, so he, he's like mocking his his wife and he's like trying to say what he thinks that she thinks of him and he's like but I don't love her I'm only her stepfather and I'm capable of loving children because we can't have any of our own isn't that what you're saying Annabelle and then she says no no and then he says good I'm glad I'm not the cold cruel ogre that mommy and daughter think I am I'm glad you have faith in me first of all this is the definition of small dick energy wow what a hit after he's infertile now you're like and he's got a tiny penis too I don't think small dick energy has to be tied to dick size. I think it's just like the presence that you emulate and he's given small man, angry little man syndrome. But anyway, and then Annabelle says, I know you got more than you bargained for when you married me two for the price of one, but we'll do anything to make you happy. And then again, later on, he says, where'd you buy her? And she says, Mason, she'll be a good playmate for Christy. And he says, mm-hmm, lacking a brother or sister. Is that what you mean? And she's like, I didn't say that. The leaps and bounds. I know. He's like, that's why you bought it in it. Sort of a reminder. I was like, bro calm down. i can't tell if he's like effectively communicating he's being very explicit he's like i feel threatened by my infertility and i think that you and your daughter hate me so <laughs> i just think you have to be such a small small man to be threatened by a doll because he had a bee in his bonnet the second it got in the house. It didn't even because the doll did not choose didn't automatically become evil he first like bitched about money and then was like about the doll in general. And that's when the doll was like, I don't like you. I'm blaming him because I don't give him any credit. We can go into what you think the doll symbolizes for him. But I do think that maybe the progressive element comes from I think he knows that their marriage is like a sham because they're like misfits in that she, I'm imagining in the 1960s, that it would be quite taboo for a woman to have a child already and then remarry. So he's, like, done her that favor by, like, taking her off the market, so to speak. I'm, again, thinking in terms of, like, 1960s dynamics. And she's done him a favor because he's infertile. They're both, in a way, have something to boot. This child calls him daddy, which I thought was weird, considering he was the stepdad. Like, that made me feel like there is no other dad in the picture, because otherwise that would be confusing. That's a very okay boundary to set, like a step-parent not wanting like a child that they've only met recently to call them mum or dad. I don't think that's bad. But obviously his like behavior aside that, 
is not great. He's not very tolerant of the situation. Um, he's not very introspective about how his issues, which I, albeit, like, if you find out you're infertile, that's difficult to come to terms with. Also, I think it's like an attack on your masculinity. If he's dealing with all of that. I think the narration, the closing narration, for example, does situate the doll as a symbol of like the family conflict because it says dolls can't talk. They certainly can't commit murder. But to a child caught in the middle of turmoil and conflict, a doll can become many things, a friend, a defender, a guardian, especially a doll like Talkie Tina, who did talk and did commit murder in the midst region of the Twilight Zone. That's interesting because if you think about the doll supposed to say I love you and this doll specifically says the opposite, I think it's pointing out the artifice of their relationship or their whole nuclear family dynamic you know what I mean in terms of like what the ideal America American family should look like I feel like it was suggesting that the doll was acting as some kind of like deep-rooted desire from the daughter's perspective of this stepfather is not like meeting my needs she's very docile because she 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 does say like she does call him daddy she is like you know, she apologized. She's like, I'm sorry for upsetting you. Like, she's not acting in the way, like, she's, like, very well-trained, I would say. And then maybe the doll is, like, saying the stuff that she's thinking or, like, wants to say. Because I don't think it's, like, a coincidence that they do mention Freud at the beginning. Aside from the 60s being, like, that being contextually just, like, relevant at the time. I feel like there's, I don't know, the, the doll's doing some subconscious thoughts. Well, I don't think you're alone in that. There's a lot of theorists who pointed this out, like the potential for overlap. For example, tvtropes.org identifies that both Christy and Tina are nicknames for Christina. So there's like an argument that they're actually the same subconscious. And then Zach Handlin for AV Club talking about how kids have intense imaginations. Kids believe in things in a way that most adults struggle with. And that belief can be charming and endearing. It can even be funny. But when there's something dangerous about it as well, you don't know where it comes from or what powers it. And you can't reason with it. There's no explanation given for why Talkie Tina is the way she is. It could just be random coincidences. Or it could be that Christy doesn't much like her new stepfather and that she's been looking for some way to get rid of him. Not in a conscious way, but if you want to really speculate, imagine Tina as some sort of malevolent spirit that latches onto children and makes their wishes come true. Either they're both, you're right, like Tina is just doing Christy's like subconscious like bidding or Christy has some sow acting through the doll. I, I also will say like, in the lore of the Twilight Zone, it's kind of implied that like what happens in the zone is also like a reflection of like subconscious anxieties, right? Like it's implied that it's not Earth as we understand it or the universe as we understand it. Like I think a lot of these are interrogating like new phenomena and like the study of psychology. Like they do mention Freud and that is like of that era it's implied that this is like a parallel universe. Like it's not quite, the rules of our universe don't quite apply here. So I think that that magic could be there. That in and of itself is uncanny. I'm going to go back and watch this whole series because it honestly, this episode was so good. It was a good introduction into the, what the Twilight Zone is, but I also think for our theme, like dolls, the uncanniness of the doll ties really well together with like what you said about the Twilight Zone wanting to kind of forefront like the artificiality of our world by showing something familiar and like twisting it in like a minute way which it really reminds me of like like Brechtian theater with like alienation and trying to trigger uncanniness 
or something quite surreal in like our day-to-day lives is something that's completely normal to us watching these segments of a world that's so familiar to us but then chooses to subvert something so small that like completely alters our sense of our own reality I think that's also where the reboot fails a little bit because um, the reboot was produced by Jordan Peele and it kind of flopped, which is a shame um, because he didn't write any of the episodes. He just produced them and each episode had a different writer. But I think what makes the original so good is, I mean, it's a commentary of that time, but it still feels applicable today. I think the new reboot is too Black Mirror-ish in its conceit and its structure where it's like, okay, Black Mirror is about technology. It's about what's scary about technology or what technology could become. It's really difficult to do a modern Twilight Zone and not lean into that like Black Mirror-y type of thing because they are super similar like anthology shows. But like, I I don't know. It's It just doesn't hit the same. It doesn't land the same to be commenting on like things that are very topical to today. I think because like things move too quickly, like all of a sudden, I mean, everything's about social media. Everything's about like, I like those stories. I think they're interesting. I think Black Mirror does it well, but something about the reboot, maybe I haven't seen all the episodes. Maybe there are a few better episodes and it feels like a great platform to bring back to today and like update. But for some reason, yeah, they, the storytelling wasn't there. I think because it's not as stripped down as the original. Like, because what, what makes Black Mirror interesting is like they have um, a lot of special effects, a lot of interesting actors. They have a lot of like, you know, they can create a whole world for just that episode, which is not really what the Twilight Zone was. Like the Twilight Zone, everything exists in this like weird suburban pseudo place, but they're all in the same universe. Whereas like, I don't know, maybe the episodes were too disparate. Maybe the topics that they chose to talk about weren't scary enough. I don't know. You're right. They got to be something basic, universal, and timeless. And I you think you're right. that I do think it would be difficult to form something in this day and age that isn't, time, isn't necessarily timeless. And I think Black Mirror is incredible, but it's definitely not timeless. It's definitely rooted in what we're fearing about technology now. I also think that like social media and us being exposed to videos of the news and just like scrolling endlessly through TikTok and Instagram, like we are hyper aware of not just like our reality in front of us, but like we're considering like five different digital realities at one time. So I think it's really difficult now through not just us not having the same like periodic TV weekly schedule anymore it'd be so difficult to create anything that that was uncanny and unfamiliar because we are living across loads of different realities at the moment like none of us are grounded to like well I'm saying none of us obviously there are people who aren't always online I think that's obviously a generational thing but it would be so difficult to account for like how much social media has changed us And if obviously you don't have to focus on technology, but that's just like now how we live. Fiction horror podcasts do this well because it goes back to that sort of like, to that like suspense era because it really strips it down. It's all about the voice acting and the Foley and the sound effects and things like that. The one that I listen to is called The Truth and they don't do 
episodes very frequently. They used to be much more frequently, but they're really high production. Every episode is a different story. So they none of them are connected. Sometimes they'll do multi-part episodes like week to week, but for the most part, they're like standalone. Would really recommend those. Like they're very in the tradition of the original suspense show, but they're modern stories. This is why, I don't know. I think it's just a problem with, and I'm going to sound so pretentious and I'm trying to think of a way to say this and not sound like an asshole, but like, this is a problem with how our modern mode of storytelling ever since the invention of the novel low-key and how it transforms into film anyways. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think we're so used to now, like, franchise culture and everything, where and, like, novels and, like, long story. Whereas I am a short story gal. I love a short story, and I think that these are delicious because there's, like, they're simple, they're concise, they get to the point. You know what I mean? Like, everything now is content is made with the aim of stretching it beyond its potential <laughs> I mean it sounds like a dick but like even like you know you write a book and you're considering the merchandising rights you know what I'm saying like everything is extended and extended and extended and extended and I, I just think that maybe what's nice about this is that it's written I mean obviously it became a big thing but I think it's written in that bite size as you say format where it's just very compact and nice and neat with a little bow and yeah you're right just really stripped down what's scary is not even like the technology of a doll I mean this was building on new technology it was based on the chatty Cathy dolls and the same voice actress June Foray was one of the leading voice vocal actresses of the era and she voiced both the doll and chatty Cathy dolls it was like commenting on the technology of the time or the emerging technology however it's not the fear is not rooted in like that it's rooted in the father and his like potential psychosis or the daughter and her potential rebellion like it's all it's all quite masterful in that way the doll in and of itself is so basic drag her it's so basic honey how much technology has changed and how much like day-to-day life has changed from the 60s how much slower life was in terms of like trend cycles like it's very difficult to create something today that speaks to not just society as a whole, even just a smaller community, because things move so quickly. And I think that we've almost like moved past an ability to create not just accurate, but like meaningful satire. And I know the Twilight Zone isn't always necessarily supposed to be a satire, but it's definitely like an element of it. It's satirizing like human life, human behavior in order to create that like uncanniness. Also, everyone is just so, they're just like wrapped in like three different layers of irony all the time because we're on social media. We're also hyper aware of ourselves, of our identities in a weird way in order to like account for and be more inclusive of different ways of being. People are just like creating more and more artificialities to life. I think you're absolutely right. And this is my criticism of media horror in that I only enjoy it up until like film set in the I'd say early 2000s and it's quite interesting because that's when the next like big thing happened and then post-internet media horror I just really think is cringe and we've talked about this before I think in our desktop horror app or maybe maybe before that or in other ways but I'm just like I find it very hard to see it depicted in horror and find it scary like there's snapchat horror films but I'm like but snapchat to be fair I've seen people use snapchat still but I for me that was like that's been and gone as an app I think Black Mirror, ironically going back to Black Mirror, does that really well in that it creates like a sustained fear of technology. I think Nope did it really well too. I think it did not get enough credit for like 
the timelessness of its commentary on media and technology. Like, I think that will still be relevant in 10, 20, 30 years because like it had that quality to it. Because it was essentially like telling a story across a hundred years, going back to like early Hollywood and the Western and was like using modern day technology to like bridge that expansive history. But there are some things in the episode that are like very of their time. Like, for example, her having to use his credit card to buy the doll and then having a whole conversation about like, how much did you spend? And she's like, you know, it's not about how much I spent. You're angry about something else. Right. But like, presumably this was before women were allowed to have their own bank accounts. Right. So that's one thing that is no longer topical or relevant to us now. There's a lot implied in that statement about like, is it that she used it without telling him and without his permission? And that she's like financially abused in that way. Is it that she secretly wants another child and bought a doll because she wants to replace it? Is it because, you know, she wants a sibling for her daughter who can never have a sibling? Like, there's lots of implications in that, like, interaction. But I still think that, like, those two lines, all they have to do is tell us their dynamic, right? He has the money, a housewife the doll kind of symbolizes love like I think that the doll in that it says I like you and then I don't like you I might even hate you I think the doll highlights the lovelessness of their marriage for him like how it is a kind of more of a transactional relationship in that way and I think that's why he's so butthurt about it as well as highlighting their like each of their taboo statuses in society shall we talk about the mon femme because I think the mon femme's so present in this one it is. We picked a good episode for this. I totally forgot the premise of this. Yeah, I mean, as well as just like the sexism in general feels mon femme But Barbara Creed talks and she's quoting Krizdova and she's kind of situating her own theoretical basis. But she talks about the abject is placed on the side of the feminine. And I'm reading here. It exists in opposition to the paternal symbolic, which is governed by rules and laws. In order to enter the symbolic era, the subject must reject or repress all forms of behavior, speech, and modes of being regarded as unacceptable, improper, or clean. So she talks about the abject, and of course the womb is an abject space. The child initially exists with the mother in this abject space of like boundaries being tested, non-human, human, blood, guts, all that stuff is all very abject. So the child then rejects that and has to reject the mother and enter the symbolic world of the father where the father is like head of everything and there's rules as creed says in the archaic mother world she reincorporates her child there's that separation and that means the child can never enter the symbolic realm of the father where he rules and also it just renders him obsolete and that's kind of a freudian take on why the father hates the scenario so much because a child exists independent of him and he cannot produce one himself like he is truly Obsolete. And I don't think it's archaic mother in the sense that we have a toothy gaping maw. In fact, all we have is this like smiling doll. But I do think it's archaic mother in the sense of like we have a father whose place in the symbolic world is being overturned by this doll's arrival, which symbolizes his obsolete existence in this family. It's kind of depressing. I mean, like, that's what sucks about patriarchy is it like puts it puts everybody in a position where like your personhood is defined by your role in the family, your role in the company. I don't know. I don't normally think of men's identities being defined by biological fatherhood in the way that like, 
you know, in that turfy feminist way that like women's identities are defined by their ability to be a biological mother. So it was an interesting like flip of that, I guess. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Feminine. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud and Spotify at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast and on Twitter at The Monfem Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and follow us on TikTok at The Monstrous Feminine Pod for podcast clips and more fun. Brooms up, witches out.